Let's go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 25. That'll be our passage today, the first 22 verses or so. You've probably heard me say before that my mom was raised in Florida. She was born and raised in Hialeah, Florida, which is a suburb of Miami. My dad was in the military down there after he had, he didn't graduate from high school until after he got out of the military, but he had uh, served down at the Homestead Air Force Base, which is south, I think it's south, of Hialeah. And uh, he would come up to the uh, high school dances. That's where he actually met my mom. So we, uh, as we grew up, we would make trips down to Florida. And I don't remember the frequency. I think we asked mom, and it was every couple or every few years or so, we would take two or three weeks of vacation. We would take three or four days to drive down. Back then, it, there wasn't an interstate all the way down. And so you would take usually three days to drive down and stay in hotels overnight and stuff and spend about a week or two down there and then spend another week or another three or four days driving back. And I remember one particular Christmas we were down there. And I don't remember how old I was. I'm guessing sometime, uh, someplace probably in the 12, 13 years of age. And um, we stayed in my small, or my grandmother's small house. And I remember I was in the living room of her house, and there was an awful lot of noise coming from the bedroom that me and my brother and sisters stayed in. And uh, just, it was real noisy, and I think it was mom said something like, I want to go check on that. So as I go down the hallway and I go into the bedroom, all of a sudden there's this loud crash. And it's because one of my siblings, I don't remember who it was at this time, had thrown a pillow or a stuffed animal and it hit the light fixture on the ceiling and it came crashing down, smashed into the floor, glass everywhere. And my dad heard that. So dad came down now into the bedroom and he was obviously upset wasn't happy, one, because of all the noise and how rambunctious we were being, but now with the damage to the ceiling. And so he made all of us, his, one of his punishments was that we would kneel against the wall, you know, down on your knees, and you would have to kneel against the wall and just stay like this. And if any of you have ever had to do that before, that is a very uncomfortable position to have to stand in or sit in for a while, kneeling, actually. And um, I just remember I had protested. I said, but Dad, I didn't do anything. And he didn't want to hear anything. He just assumed we're all guilty. And I'm like, they were in here throwing this stuff. I got asked to come in here by, by Mom, and I shouldn't be punished. But he was not going to hear any of it. And I was stubborn. doesn't surprise. I see him over here. doesn't surprise anybody. And so as each one of my siblings kind of said, I'm sorry, and I shouldn't have, I, was, I just refused. And so I was the last one there still kneeling up against that wall. My knees were killing me, my back was killing me, but I just was not going to admit to doing something that I didn't do. Now, in the end, I think I finally caved and did it anyway. But I think about that as I was preparing this session for this morning, and it's just an example of injustice. I wasn't guilty my dad didn't want to give me a fair trial or a fair hearing. He had, he just, you're all guilty, you're all in the room. And it didn't matter how much I protested and the facts were on my side, I was going to have to face unjust punishment of kneeling against the wall. And it didn't help that I was just plain stubborn and a lot of the discomfort probably could have been avoided had I just confessed anyway that I didn't do it. You know, that, you know just admit to it anyway and then just dad would let us up and go away, but I didn't. We're going to look at this concept of injustice today as we look at the Apostle Paul. Now, if you remember, Paul had already had one trial before Felix. 
Remember, Felix wasn't a good guy. He was a tyrannical leader. He was rather harsh in his actions in treating Jews. He caused a lot of tension between the Jews and the Romans. In fact, Josephus had said that he probably was one of the biggest reasons why shortly after he was removed from office, there were three fairly sizable rebellions from the Jews against Rome. He was corrupt. We see that in Paul's case when he was tried last week that he left Paul in prison for two years, or not prison so much, but confinement for two years because he was hoping to get a bribe from Paul, or at least Paul's buddies, somebody willing to pay him off to have Paul released from jail. So that was an unjust trial. We know that. Well, there was a second trial that Paul faced, and this one wasn't a whole lot better. It was by a governor named Festus. We're going to be looking at that today. His governorship was fairly short-lived. He basically died in office after serving only two years. Historically, we don't know a whole lot about him, but he was considered to be a good and a fair governor. He was known for acting very quickly. He was very decisive in what he would do. And so those are his good traits, but he did share a trait with Felix, and that was a desire to placate or to garner favor among the Jews, and we're going to see today how that impacted his ability to provide Paul with a fair trial. So we have this governor who was a good and fair governor for the most part, but he struggled with trying to appease a very large group of individuals, the Jews, and so it impacted how he would try the Apostle Paul. Justice is supposed to be blind. You've heard that before. Do you all know who Lady Justice is? She was the Roman god of justice. We often see her. She has a blindfold on. You know, she has scales in her hands. And the reason she has the blindfold on her eyes is because she's supposed to be blind. She's not supposed to see. She's supposed to rule based on facts and figures, not simply based on emotions or what she sees. And so we get from that this concept that justice is supposed to be blind, unbiased. There's a problem with that, though. Justice isn't always blind because there's two sides to the law. One side is what I'm just going to simply refer to as the legal side, and that's the black and the white, the rules, the regulations, the laws, the penalties. That's what's scripted. It's what's written down. Do this, and this is the penalty. It would be great if we could apply the law that way. It would be fair for everyone, right? Do this, get this. The problem is that there's another side to the law, and it's referred to as the social side. And what that is, is that's how the laws and the penalties are applied based on things like bias and prejudice, politics, social influences. And unfortunately, oftentimes that social side of the law is more powerful and more influential than the legal side. In other words, you've got the legal side of it that's supposed to make it black and white, cut and dry, the rules are there. You're a judge, you apply those rules. You're a police officer, you apply those rules. And you apply them equally, unbiased. But unfortunately, because of political influence or prejudice or bias, those laws, those rules don't get applied like they should be. That's the social side. Let me give you a couple of examples. The wealthy or the affluent getting preferential treatment because they can afford the high-priced attorneys. Or you know, we think back about O.J. Simpson's trial. You know, and you wonder how another individual, maybe you or I, might have fared in that particular circumstance if we couldn't hire a group of six attorneys and pay them millions of dollars to find out ways to use the system and maybe get us off or not get us off. I don't think we would probably argue that sometimes the law is a little bit unfair in how we treat those who maybe don't have the resources that others do. I think it's pretty obvious. Not in every case, but I think we'd all recognize that. Maybe when it comes to arrests or other things, you know, that's 
pretty unfair. Dustin shared something recently about a good friend of his, homeless man. Pretty serious, unjust treatment, probably because of who he is and his social status and his color and everything else. We know that kind of stuff happens. How about another example? We watched a couple of summers ago our cities be burned down, riots, and we saw how the media portrayed that. You know, some of you have seen the pictures of the CNN reporter with, with buildings on fire behind him saying, it's a mostly peaceful protest, you know. Put that in contrast to what we've seen recently in Canada with the Freedom Convoy. Whether you agree or disagree with the truckers up in Canada, almost from the beginning they were labeled terrorists, aggressors. And yet, just a short time before that, their cities were on fire and they all sat back and just referred to them as peaceful protesters. Why was one group treated different than another? I've told you a couple of times in the last few weeks that Amy and I have been kind of watching the People's Convoy and the Freedom Convoy here travel from California out to Hagerstown. It's been interesting to watch because when they went through Illinois, the Illinois um, State Patrol put out a letter just a day or two before a tweet that basically said, don't come to our state! There are laws here! You'll be arrested! And, And some truckers went back in history and found their tweets from when they escorted Black Lives Matter into their downtown and let them burn the cities. But yet they're warning truckers who, from all the way out in California up to Illinois, hadn't had a single traffic accident, a single violation of the law. Everywhere they went and stayed overnight was cleaner when they left than when they got there. And yet they were treated very differently. They've been staying at a place called Hagerstown, Maryland, a racetrack. And every day they go out and they drive a circle or two around Washington, D.C. And again, whether you agree or disagree with what they're doing, It's been extremely peaceful. Well, they've made their motives known. They've made their plans known every time they've done this. They notify all three of the state patrols, the states involved, and say, this is when we're going to leave. This is what exit we're going to take out of the outer belt. This is how long we're going to be there. This is the exit we're going to take off. And we are not going into downtown. We are not into D.C. That's not our plans. But every day as they've gone out, the police have blocked all of the exits so they can't even get off. The problem is... Nobody can get off. And they've been blaming the truckers for the congestion. Now, a couple of truckers have at other times gone into the city and been very peaceful. They park where the food trucks are. The food trucks are allowed to be there, but the truckers are not. And their trucks get towed. Why are they treated differently than when Black Lives Matter almost burned D.C. to the ground? Now, I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm simply saying that the law gets applied differently to different groups of people based on biases and other things. And so the law, justice, is not always blind. And we know that. Unfortunately, the social side becomes the more powerful, more influential side. And we're going to see that today as we look at what happened with the Apostle Paul. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 25. Festus, this governor, travels to Jerusalem to meet with the chief priests and then their influential leaders. If you remember back in Acts chapter 24, verse 27, go ahead and look at that first. Paul was left in confinement when Felix was removed from office. Verse 27 of chapter 24 says, But after two years have passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. There we see the first injustice. He left Paul sitting confined for two years, Paul had some good opportunity to share the gospel with him, but he still left him there because he was trying ultimately to do the Jews a favor. He wanted a bribe for one, but he also wanted to do the Jews a favor. He wanted to appease them. 
And so that's how this all starts. Well, when Festus comes into office here, Paul is still in prison, but just three days into his term, Festus decides to do something about it. Remember I said that he was known to be quick? Well, this is one of them. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 25. Festus then arriving in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. There's an important word here. It's actually the word now. In some of your Bibles it might be then or therefore. What that word tells us is that the verse that we're looking at is directly tied, the result of, if you will, the verse before it. And so what this tells us is that Festus went to Jerusalem from Caesarea because when he, started, when he got in office, he realized, this dude Paul's still sitting here. There's something not right about this. So he specifically leaves Caesarea three days into his term and goes down to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish leaders and find out what's going on here. Why is this guy still languishing in my confinement? His first order of business then is to travel to Jerusalem. He meets with, and it tells us here, the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews. Now we know who the chief priests are. They're really the legal authorities, if you will. But the leading men here is a reference to the most prominent. It's probably the best way to think about it is those influential businessmen, maybe, and politicians and others. They aren't necessarily the legal side. They're the influential people, the influential leaders among the Jews. It's the ones who make the most noise. You might see them, on, in our case, the news media and other things, and you wonder, why is he involved? You know? Got a lot of bark, makes a lot of noise. Very powerful, very influential people, but don't really have much to do with legal matters, but they're always there making noise. And so that's really who he's meeting with here, the scribes and these highly influential figures. These men laid out their charges against Paul, and it says that they repeatedly, that's the tense used there, repeatedly begged him for concessions. That's literally the word for favor. They asked him to do them a favor against Paul. Which was this, bring him to Jerusalem. Why? Because they wanted to try him themselves and kill him. We already know that. And so when he goes there to meet with them, they begin to beg him, just give us Paul, we'll deal with it, we'll try him. We already knew what they were plan- their plans were. We've shown that before in previous passages. Notice that Luke tells us here that they had another thing in mind, which was what? Set an ambush and kill him. Again, pretense. Bring him here, we'll deal with it when the real plan was to kill him. Fortunately, Festus refuses their request, and instead he invites a select group to accompany him back to Caesarea. Look at verses 4 and 5. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, Let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. It's unclear why Festus refused their request, but what's interesting is that when he informs them that Paul is being kept at Caesarea, look at who he invites along. Do you notice there's a group that's dropped out of it, out of this? It started with, he met with the scribes and the influential men, but who does he invite to come along to Caesarea? The scribes? The legal authorities? No, it's the influential men. It says it right there in the text. The influential men among you. Bring them. To Caesarea. That's our first clue that maybe this trial isn't going to be all that fair for Paul. When the Jews come down to present their case before the governor, I'm sorry, before Felix, it actually included chief priests, elders, and a lawyer. There were no witnesses, but it was a true legal trial. 
because it had, again, the legal authorities, the chief priest, the elders, and then a lawyer. But here, he only invites the elite of the Jews, those with the most social or political power and influence, to show up. So again, it provides our first clue that maybe this isn't going to be a fair trial for the Apostle Paul. Remember my comment about the social side being sometimes the more powerful side? This is setting it up. We also find a little bit later in our passage that Festus was, excuse me, was looking for a way to appease the Jews, just like Felix had before him. In order to do that, he would need these influential men to be there. You have to remember that at this time, there was a lot of tension between the Jews and the Romans. In fact, Felix had to put down two previous revolts, if you will. There's going to be three more after Felix. Festus here had put down some small revolts as well. There was constant tension between the Jews and the Romans. And the primary responsibility of a governor was to actually keep the peace. That was his primary responsibility at this time. And so you can see why there might be some pressure for Festus to want to appease the Jews. He didn't want them revolting against Rome. I believe that's why Festus only invited the Jewish elite to accompany him back to Caesarea. One of the commentaries that have been, has been very good from a, um, understanding the culture and stuff behind what happens here in the book of Acts is written by a guy with the last name of Witherington. It's kind of interesting. I uh, picked up the book. It's about that thick. And uh, extremely technical. It's a hard read. And I was talking to a friend of mine from seminary not too long ago, and he's like, oh, yeah, I know him. Well, the guy's been in his house and all kinds of stuff, you know, and it's kind of interesting. I'm thinking, who does my friend not know? I don't have any connections like that. But anyway, it was interesting because he knows this, this gentleman. But listen to what he said about this. What is often overlooked in the discussion of these chapters by biblical scholars is the difference between Roman law and Roman officials, between what was legally the case and what was actually the case. In other words, what gets overlooked is the social networks and channels of influence, the legal side and the social side. As we shall see, Roman law was indeed on Paul's side. He was not guilty of a chargeable offense. This does not mean that the local Roman officials would necessarily be on Paul's side just because he was a Roman citizen. When Festus appears to have been more honest and less venal than either Felix or than his, the guy that follows him up, this does not mean in the end that he was not subject to influence by means of the elite of the land. Even if at first he resisted such an influence when he first went and he rejected their their request, the favor they wanted from him, he rejected that. So even though at first he resisted their influence, since throughout the empire, provincial governors depended on the support of the local elites to secure peace, order, justice, this inevitably made these governors subject to influence of the elites. The representative conventions also made of this were inevitable. If the Jewish elites cooperated with the procurator, they would expect favors in return. In other words, the governors often had to rely on these social elites to keep their people in line. And so sometimes that meant bending the rules. Get them on your side. They do you a favor. They help prevent the Jews from rebelling, but then they expect a favor in return from you. And in some respects, that may have been, this is pure speculation, but it may have been that as they were talking to Festus in Jerusalem, it may have been, look, we'll take care of this problem for you. Just give them to us. And that would be something very attractive to Festus because he had to keep the peace. And you can imagine how, and we've seen this even ourselves, you know, you don't give us what you want, we'll burn it down. Isn't it what they say? And so there was tremendous pressure. And we sort of see that beginning here with Festus. So even though he was a fair and good governor by many means, he was under tremendous pressure 
to keep the Jews happy. And we see that play out a little bit here as he invites them to come back to Caesarea. So what we find next is Paul's actual hearing, if you will, before Festus. We find that in verses 20, or I'm sorry, verses 6 through 12. Let's read the first couple of verses, or 6 through 8. So they're back in Caesarea. And he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them. He went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense, either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. So these influential men come down and present their case before Festus. Now, Luke doesn't lay everything out for us. He's already given us a pretty good indication of what these charges were against him elsewhere. Just simply refers to it here as many and serious charges. We know based on Paul's response here that it had to do with two things. He's an enemy of Jerusalem or enemy of Israel and he's an enemy of Rome. That's really what they were trying to accuse Paul of. Both of them carried the death penalty, if you will. If he had been found to really be an enemy of the Jews and desecrating the temple, they would have dragged him out and killed him. They've tried to do that before. They've tried to ambush him twice. If he was found guilty of being an enemy of Rome, he'd be executed by Rome. That was the whole plan. So it was almost like they said, look, if we can get him on being an enemy of the Jews, we can kill him. If he's an enemy of Rome, Rome will kill him. Hey, we'll try to ambush him in the middle. Many opportunities to get rid of this individual named Paul. In fact, if you remember, when they had gone before Felix, they referred to him as a pest, a plague on Rome. So they attempted to make Paul both an enemy of Rome and an enemy of the people of Israel, both of them deserving death. However, their case had one fatal flaw. You remember what Paul says here? Look back at verses 7 and 8. Second half of that. They brought many serious charges against him, which he could not prove. Which he could not, which they could not prove. Paul says, I have committed no offense, either against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. He denied all of their charges. They weren't true. And this, we don't know how much was actually said. You know, Luke does a lot of summary here, but this is an encapsulation of the charges against him and how Paul actually responded. So how might we expect a good and righteous-minded, fair judge to respond at this point? What should we expect of this Governor Festus, who's supposed to uphold the law, as he hears the evidence and realizes there's no truth to it, they haven't proven their case, well, in spite of the lack of evidence and Paul maintaining his innocence, what does Festus do? Basically tries to send Paul back to Jerusalem. Why didn't he just do that in the first place? Well, look at verses uh, verse 9. But Festus, there's that great word again, but, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor... Wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? In other words, you know, Paul, I've been thinking about this. What do you say? Are you willing to go back there, Paul? Didn't order him back. You know, tried to get Paul to sort of say, Yeah, I'm willing to do that. Why? I'm not really sure, but, you know, again, he's a good and... You know, governor, you know, he's trying to do the best here. He's trying to work things out. He's looking for a solution, you know. Doesn't want to push anybody. But he's really trying to find a way out of this situation that he's in. Right out of the gate, the Bible tells us that he was wishing to do the Jews a favor. Trying to appease them. Why? Because it would keep the peace. It isn't really about Paul's innocence or guilt. He's looking down the road. Boy, you know, if I let Paul go, 
this could really cause some trouble. So he's trying to find a solution. Maybe if Paul would just willingly go, you know. Paul's response in verses 10 and 11 um, gets right to the point. I'm standing here before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you also know very well. I love that. Come on, Festus, you know. You know. I've done nothing wrong to the Jews. Verse 11, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, that's probably a a reference to more Rome at this point, I do not refuse to die, but if, if I've done any of these things, or any of those things, if it's true, of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. You know, Paul knows that he's really in the right place to be tried because it was a a sham when the Sanhedrin did their thing. He's standing before Rome. If he's being accused of being an enemy against Rome, then he ought to be tried in a Roman court. And he says, Festus, why would I go back there when I'm in the place I really should be, which is tried before Rome? So he rejects this attempt by Festus to appease the Jews by going back and calls out Festus. It should have been a stern rebuke. That's the way Festus should have seen it. Because Paul just said, you know I'm not guilty. Why would you send me back there? I'm right here being tried. Issue a decision here. Remember, Felix refused to do that. Felix said, yeah, I've heard all the evidence. You know, we'll wait for the commander to come back. We'll talk to him again. He already had the letter from the commander saying, I don't think he's guilty. Felix knew he wasn't guilty. And now we've got Festus knowing he's not guilty and Paul is still in prison. Or at least in captivity. Problem is, Festus didn't know what to do with Paul. He knew Paul was innocent of the crimes against Rome. He became convinced that the issue was really just this dispute on religious issues between Paul and the Jews. But rather than release him and run the risk of upsetting the Jewish elite, he succumbs to the political pressure and tries to find this way to appease the Jews by letting them have Paul. Kind of let Paul make the decision. Part of that may have been motivated by the fact that if he had forced Paul to go and it ended up causing some tension by others, then it kind of blows back on him as well. Like I said, he's trying to, you know, I don't want to make the decision. You you make the decision, Paul. You go back. So what does Paul do here? Well, he realizes he's not going to get a fair trial. That's pretty clear. Look at verses 10 through 12 again. But Paul says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. If I've done no wrong to the Jews, or I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not or I do not refuse to die, but if none of those things is true, of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. So what does Paul do here? Well he knows he's not going to get a fair trial, so he appeals to Caesar. It's kind of interesting there. Roman citizens had the right to appeal directly to Caesar himself, and at this time it was Nero. We all know who Nero is. He was he used to set Christians on fire in his palace. At this point in history, Nero wasn't known for persecuting Christians. It's a few years later, as you get towards AD 65. This is probably AD 61 or so. Um, but that's who he becomes, certainly. So Paul is actually appealing to Nero at this point. And Roman citizens can do this. There was actually a name for it. It was called a provocatio. And they could do that even before decisions were given, even before trials had taken place. It was something afforded to Roman citizens. Probably the best way for us to think of this would be like if we had the ability to appeal directly to the Supreme Court and have it heard. Even before the trial started, or even before 
a ruling was given. The way our system works here is you go to court, they rule, then you can appeal it, and then the appeals court rules, and if they're not in your favor, then you can try to appeal it, and ultimately you appeal it up to the Supreme Court, but after a bunch of decisions have been made. The way this worked was you could simply say, I want to be tried before Caesar. That was given to Roman citizens. Others weren't given that right. And so that's what Paul does here. And he does it because he realizes that he's not going to receive a fair trial by Festus. And it was within his right to do that. Well, after Festus goes and talks with his counsel, he realizes he doesn't have much choice. He couldn't really reject it. And so he goes ahead and he basically says, okay, you've appealed to Caesar, then so be it. But there's one more thing that happens before he does that. It's going to be talking to King Agrippa. Look at Acts 25, starting at verse 13. We'll read through the rest of the section here. Now, when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner of Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. That's partly why he wanted Paul to make that decision, because Romans didn't typically just hand them over to their accusers. But if the prisoner said, yeah, I'll do it, well, he's off the hook, right? So we see that here. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, I love that, about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Even during the trial, Paul was still taking it as an opportunity to talk about Jesus. Being, a, being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I mean, yeah, how do you investigate a dead man, right? Well, Luke did. Apparently this Roman... Festus couldn't figure that out. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I sent him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would also like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So Festus has this dilemma. He found Paul guilty of nothing, but because Paul had appealed to Caesar, now he's got to send him to Caesar. Well, that actually put Festus in a rather weird position, because in order to send him to Caesar, he has to have charges. Because he has to write Caesar a letter and say, okay, here's why I'm sending this guy to you. Here are the charges against him. He's appealed to you. The problem is he doesn't have any charges, because he knows Paul's not guilty of any crimes against Rome. So he's got himself a bit of a dilemma. Paul wants to go to Rome. I have to send him to Rome, but... Now I'm going to look like an idiot because i got nothing to send him to Rome on. Well, fortunately for Festus, King Agrippa decides to pay him a visit. King Agrippa was king over the region, mostly just outside of Caesarea. He was at least half Jew, but he's a Roman official. He really is you know, working for the Jewish people of sorts, but he's employed, if you will, by the Romans. So he rules the area just outside of Caesarea, but he happens to come into Caesarea... He actually had a reputation for being a very, very pious, a very religious man. He was an expert in Jewish issues, but he was also a faithful subject of Rome. In fact, when the Romans attacked Jerusalem on AD 70 and destroyed the city and the temple, he supported the Romans. That's who he was. But he comes here now 
to Caesarea, most likely to pay his respects to congratulate Festus on becoming the governor. And he shows up with Bernice. Now, what do we know about Bernice? Well, she was referred to as Queen Bernice. She was Agrippa's sister, full-blooded sister. She'd been married three times. She was widowed twice. She was divorced once. She then moved in with Agrippa and served as his queen. Now, here's the thing. Rumors at the time speculated that they were having an incestuous relationship. Might be why she was referred to as queen. Well, to cover that up, she convinced another king, King Cilicia, to marry her and to convert to Judaism. But unfortunately, he got a little tired of her after a while, and he divorced her and sent her back to Agrippa. Then, to try to mitigate some things, she became the mistress of an emperor. Actually, it was the emperor's son. You might remember the name Vespasian. But she basically um, married or became the mistress of Titus, his son. But he got tired of her too and ultimately sent her back to Agrippa. Well, here she is. She shows up with Agrippa alongside him, co-ruler of sorts as queen. Neither one are very good individuals. That's kind of the pattern we've seen here, isn't it? And Festus lays out his dilemma before him. I won't rehash all of that, but basically, I got this problem, king. I don't know what to do with this guy. He's appealed to Caesar. I got to send him to Caesar. I got no charges. He's innocent. I got to send him, though, because he appealed. And ultimately, King Agrippa decides, you know, I'd kind of like to hear this guy myself. Now, part of that may have been because he was interested in helping Festus out. Some people speculate it was because he was just interested because he loved, he was a Jewish scholar of sorts. And obviously, they knew that Paul was speaking about this new sect, these Christians. It may have been that he was interested in hearing some of that. And he certainly will, because as we get into Paul's defense, if you will, his testimony before Festus next week, we're going to see that Paul just lays it out there and there is no way that Festus and uh, Agrippa leave that time without fully hearing the gospel. So for whatever reason, he agrees and is willing to help Festus out. That's pretty much where our passage ends today. Next week, we're going to get into King King Agrippa's, um, as he listens to Paul, how that all fares out. There's some great stuff in there, but I want to give us a couple of a couple of takeaways as we go through this, or as we went through this. The first takeaway is this. Justice is supposed to be blind. That's the way God intended it, but it's often not. We live in a fallen world. That's just the reality, folks. Justice is supposed to be blind. The Old Testament lays out in the law how Jews were supposed to relate to one another, and it was always in justice and truth, but it often isn't. There are biases, there are assumptions that are made, there's social and political pressures, there's influences, there's agendas, there's even outright corruption when it comes to the law. And it's introduced at every step of the process, right from the arrest sometimes, to the investigation, to the trial, and even sometimes into the decisions and the sentencing. I think we all know that. We look around and we wonder sometimes. Paul faced all of those. If you remember, the injustice has started when he first shows up at Jerusalem and he's facing these rumors that he hated his own people, that he was telling them to, to abandon Moses and the law, to when he goes to the temple to try to appease some of them and he goes into worship and he's arrested and dragged out and beaten almost to death before the Romans come. And what do the Romans do? They show up and instead of arresting the guilty ones that are beating him, they arrest Paul. Why? They just assumed he was the guilty one. Couldn't be the Jews. And then he gets to the point where even before the Sanhedrin, where they almost tear him apart, Paul is taken to the barracks where they strip him and they strap him up to the bar. They're ready to torture a, a false confession out of him. The only thing that saved his life there was admitting, I'm a Roman. 
which kind of changed things a little bit. But he faces these two assassination attempts, even when they're trying to bring him out to a trial. Every step of the process with Paul, he's faced this injustice. Why? Because the law and justice are not always blind. That's what we face. Not a great takeaway, is it? I wish I could give us better news. I wish I could tell you that as things progress here in the United States and as Christians are accused of more and more wrongdoing, that we can rely on our justice system and say, we're going to be okay because justice is blind and we're going to have the same rights as the non-Christians. I wish I could tell you that if you have a business that you try to run on Christian principles, that if you are attacked or accused of violating certain laws, that you'd be able to just simply go to court and win. Anybody believe that? Sometimes, sometimes not. Highly unjust. We have Christians in this nation who've been bankrupted because of it. They never received justice. Because in their case, it wasn't blind. So I wish I had better news in that regard. The second takeaway is this. In spite of that fact, the Lord commands us to submit ourselves and to honor those in authority above us. Well, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? It really is. It's counterintuitive. But it follows the model of Christ, does it not? We will never face the kind of injustice that Christ did. Never. And yet, what was his example? Even before his accusers, before his abusers, he still honored the position, the authority that God had set before him. That is a hard principle for us. Because our natural response is we have rights. And Paul didn't ignore his rights. We saw that, right? He took advantage of the, or took advantage of the right that he had as a Roman citizen. One, to not be flogged. Two, to be tried in a Roman court. Three, to appeal to Caesar. He took advantage of those rights, but all along the way, he submitted to the authorities and followed the process through, even though it wasn't always just. And here's the kicker for all this. You're all familiar with what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13. He wrote this, Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. That's what Paul wrote in Romans 13. Now think about this for a second. Did you know that Paul wrote that after he and Silas had been mistreated by the city magistrates in Philippi? They were basically beaten with rods. They were arrested, stripped naked, tossed into a prison cell, and locked in stocks. And it was after that that Paul wrote, Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. How could he do that? He understood Even at the end of his life, in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Paul wrote this, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. That was not only after his experience with Felix, with Festus, with Agrippa, but from a prison cell at the end of his life, right before he was beheaded. Think about that for a moment. Paul languishing in a prison cell for the second time, and he knows, because as we look at First and Second Timothy, as we look at Titus, Paul knows he's not getting out. He knows his life is over. He knows that he's been mistreated. He knows that he's been abused. He knows that he's faced injustice. And yet he has the gall to write to Titus, remind them to be subject. How could he do that? I think it's because Paul understood a third thing, and it's the third takeaway. There's more at stake than the injustices we might face. There's God's purpose and plan. It's a hard thing for us sometimes to digest. Sometimes the injustices we face are part of God's plan to accomplish the propagation of the gospel. And it doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive to us sometimes. But I want you to think about this with Paul. 
I just finished up, or probably another half hour, maybe an hour from finishing up, the very last two verses of the book of Acts. And as I reflected on Paul, we find the last two things that Luke says about the Apostle Paul was that he's in his own rented house in Rome. And he's able to preach with boldness and unhindered the gospel to all who would come to him. Paul's there preaching the gospel unhindered in such a way that we find out elsewhere that the whole entire Praetorian Guard, which are the elite of the elite soldiers that protected Nero himself, Paul says, all of them have heard the gospel. In addition to that, Paul tells us elsewhere that even members of Caesar's own household had become Christians during Paul's time under house arrest in Rome. And what brought him there? What was the path to get him there? Being arrested in Rome, or I mean in Jerusalem, being beaten, being chained to soldiers, almost being flogged, facing at least two unfair trials and another time before Agrippa, then traveling through the sea, six months in the ocean, shipwrecked, and ultimately ending up in Rome. And God all the way, it was his purpose and his plan, because Jesus, before any of that started, said, Paul, you're going to testify before kings and governors. You're going to go to Rome. And all the way back in the beginning of Acts, we're told that Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in what? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? Even to the ends of the earth. Paul, when he gets released this time, actually, tradition says, goes on to Spain. Paul went to the end of the earth, if you will, from a Roman perspective. And so when we look at this injustice that Paul faced every step of the way, it was all ultimately part of God's purpose and plan. It's how God took him to Rome. It's how he got him to testify before rulers and kings, ultimately the emperor's own family. So there's more at stake than the injustices we face. And that's why we're told that even in spite of the injustice, we need to respect the authorities that God has placed into those positions of authority. Doesn't mean we have to be happy about it. Doesn't mean that God has abandoned us or forgotten about us. Sometimes our greatest testimonies come out of that difficulty. I'm reminded of... You know, Cake Baker Jack, you know, out in, what is it, Portland or out in Washington. Um, the number of opportunities that he's had to talk about Jesus, but it may ultimately, in the end, bankrupt him completely. He's still fighting this after nearly a decade. But his perspective, as best I can tell all along, is that Jesus has been proclaimed. There's something more at stake than just the injustices we face. Much like Jesus. Had Jesus not faced the injustice he did, we would have no hope. No hope at all. But God's purpose and plan for him was that he would suffer, die, be buried, and ultimately rise again. And had that not happened, we would not be here. Now, I know that's hard for us to hear, but there's hope in that. Because it puts us exactly where we need to be. I was reflecting on the kingdom of God last night because we're told at the end of Acts that Paul preached the kingdom and taught about Jesus during those two years when he was in Rome. And I got to thinking about that, that it's hard to get our head around the kingdom of God sometimes, that there's two sides to so the spiritual side and an earthly side. And Jesus himself said that you cannot enter into the kingdom of God without suffering. That's how we get there. And sometimes that means we will face injustice. But the reward for our faith in Christ and remaining obedient to him, being willing to suffer even as Peter says in First and Second Peter, the reward for that is we get to be a part of God's kingdom. That brings hope. Because the alternative isn't very pretty, is it? So as I look at this passage today, I'm just kind of reminded again on 
man, Paul's commitment to God's plan and God's purpose and his willingness to suffer these injustices. Now again, he didn't just lay down and take it. Remember, he exercised the rights that he had, but he didn't always get the justice that those rights should have demanded. And we may not either. But we need to hold the line. We need to continue to move forward, remain bold just as Paul did, and recognize that even in the face of injustice, God's purpose and plan will unfold exactly as he promised us it would. And our reward is we join him in his kingdom as a result.